0: We're at February the 11th, Lesson 16. So, Matthew chapter 4, and we'll begin today uh, talking about the Satan's, I guess it would be more accurate to say Satan's attempts at tempting our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what that means. I don't know about uh, y'all, well I do know, but I just want you to agree with me this morning that we all (laughs) struggle with sin, and that's to say that we struggle with temptation, right? We all are in that boat, we know that. We know that no matter how sanctified we may feel or how much of the sanctification process in our life we're celebrating and rejoicing over, you know, when we see significant evidence of that, we know there's also a scripture that tells us to take heed when we think we stand, lest we fall. And that denotes a certain mindset that we're to maintain. That we're to be vigilant. As Peter would say, that we're to be sober-minded. We're to think rightly all the time because the battle rages. The battle continues. And were it not for what Christ has accomplished for us as believers, it would be a very miserable existence. It would be an existence where we're just kind of looking at What's out yonder for us someday that one day we'll put off all of this and, you know, life's hard, you know. You live and then you die, you know. Man is born of woman a few days and full of trouble. You know, we kind of have that kind of attitude. Even though that's true, we go far beyond that when we focus upon what Christ has accomplished for us. That He's conquered sin for us to secure our justification. And He's also conquered it for us that we might live a sanctified life when we trust Him, when we deal with sin in our life. And that's always underlining virtually everything that we we talk about. Because Christ came into this world to save sinners. That's why He came. He came to be the sacrifice for the sins of everyone who would ever believe upon Him. So we soon realize shortly after our salvation, that temptation remains. And it causes us great concern because I don't know how your particular salvation experience was. But we literally, I think we could define it as a mountaintop experience when we first experienced, hey Rob, come in brother, when we first experience, and I like to put it this way, as I often have, our sin burden being lifted, our sin burden being relieved. That is, uh, that's quite an experience to lay that baggage down and to have the confidence that Christ has paid that sin debt, not just in general, not just from the knowledge standpoint, but from the personal standpoint, that my sins are covered. And uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Temptation remains because as we know, the unredeemed flesh remains, does it not? We know that all too well. And it'll stay with us until our our salvation is complete. It'll stay there when we realize our glorification is real in heaven. We're there. And we'll experience all that God has provided for us. This is because of the sacrifice, the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our struggle with temptation should be a constant reminder to us that our battle with the influence of evil remains active, of course, but also it reminds us of Christ's abiding presence and Christ's provision in our life. We shouldn't go one moment in the battle without realizing, recognizing, leaning upon the work of Christ, what He has done. He has said, I won't leave you. I want not forsake you. And he's going to say to us later, and I'll hold the Scripture, but he's going to say, I'm going to provide for you a way out when you're tempted. I'm going to provide that. Yet, because we allow ourselves to be subjected, if you will, to the delusions of the attacker, the accuser, Satan, and all of his imps, because we allow that in our life, we don't exercise good judgment. We yield to the flesh, in whatsoever area there is, we experience this this breach, if you will, in fellowship. Not relationship, but this breach of fellowship. When we know that we're not strong. We know that we're guilty. We know specifically that there's sin, unconfessed sin in our heart and life. My heart and life. And until I've confessed that sin and forsaken it, I'm going to bear this burden again. I'm going to bear it, but Christ has paid for that. He's paid for it ultimately with his sacrificial death. But today we'll look at the impact of His experience in the wilderness, the desert there of Judea, and what that what that means for us today. As a young Christian, I used to, at one point, when a very young Christian, I questioned my salvation. Because I still struggled with temptation. I didn't realize in full what had happened. I was very idealistic in thinking about what Christ had done for me. While I knew that uh, uh, the Spirit of God had entered my life, uh, you know, I, I had the, those evidences that that had happened. I wanted God's Word. I wanted God's will. I wanted God's way. I wanted my conduct changed. I wanted the way I thought changed initially, but how to get there? I thought maybe something more along the mystical lines that happens. It's like, poof, now you, you spiritually have all this power. And granted, there's a truth to that. You have that potential, but not apart from knowing and walking in the Word of God. Not, a, not apart from expressing faith in what God has done. And We express that faith most clearly how? By obedience. That's how we do that. And then it begins to grow, and things begin to change, and the way we think begins to change. And we find that extra strength that we want and need to face the demands, the difficulties, the challenges, the testings, if you will, the temptations of this life. God provides that for us. Well, promises, vows to be good, vows to... Do better, all this self sacrifice, even as we look at different religions, self flagellation, all these kind of things, you know, wearing rough clothing, <laughs> things to help us keep our mind away from the comforts of this world uh, in a physical way. Do nothing, the Bible says, in dealing with our sin. Nothing. Has no contribution whatsoever. Only Christ can do that. Only confidence in what. Christ has accomplished can do that. So this is how we begin and we start our study today, focusing on the temptation of Christ, which took place in the wilderness. And the Bible tells us that it took place immediately after His baptism. Immediately after. Jesus had been presented, as it were, as we've talked about, and in conjunction with with Matthew's ultimate theme. He had been presented as king. We know that. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He is the king. And now we get to see him being, if you will, kingly. We get to see him uh, and from our perspective kind of in, in the trenches, dealing with life as we would deal with it. And while he was, you know, miraculously heavenly equipped to do that, It's interesting to note, as I trust we'll bring out this morning, that brother, he experienced it on such a level. By that I'm talking about temptation. He experienced it on a level that you and I will never experience it. We, We cannot experience what Christ experienced. And I'll show you something in a little bit that kind of brings that home. But he has satisfied God's Requirement on our behalf he is still he was when he entered into temptation uh, through the devil's leading. he was the perfect lamb, spotless and without blemish, and when he came out on the other side, he was still that perfect lamb, spotless and without blemish. That's what we rejoice in. that's what we rejoice in. So we look at our study today in these particular sections of scripture. And as I, I looked at this, I, I knew from studying this in the past that there was a particular Scripture from Hebrews that just comes to bear on this whole episode of the temptation. And I said, now, do we want to deal with this at the end or do we want to deal with this at the beginning? So I chose to deal with it up front here. And as you may have guessed, it's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Because it's kind of laid out for us here in a nutshell. Of course, the writer of Hebrews is looking back, being fully aware of the sacrifice of Christ, who Christ was, all, you know, if you read Hebrews, all about Christ in his humanity, laying down his heavenly estate, putting on this flesh and so forth. He was fully God, fully man at all times, but this is what he experienced for us. And this verse is a dear verse to me. It pops up in my thinking and teaching time after time, we've already mentioned it, but we're going to explore it a little bit this morning, because he says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. One of the commentators I read made a point of saying, you know, when we look at these things that Christ went through, what He, what he did, the writers kind of lay it out there succinctly, plainly. John's often more guilty of this as we've looked at. But they don't, they don't try to embellish the experience. You know what I'm saying? They just say what happened. And it testifies to the veracity of Scripture. It does. Because what would we do as human beings if, if man just sat down and made up all this and wanted to write about it, You know what human nature would do. Oh, it would be so flowerly. It would be all this effort to convince us, you know, through some literary design or effort that this happened, that happened. But you know, the Scriptures don't do that. It just says what happened, okay? What is real. And what's real here is that Christ is, was then, is now, still sympathizing with our weaknesses. He knows. It's experiential to him, though he could not sin. Now, I can't can't explain that to you. I just put that in the category of all the other things that I can't explain. Uh, But the people that I read and study with, you can't explain it either. I mean, not in its fullness. But we know that he was fully God. He was fully man. And though he couldn't be tempted, yet he did experience these, I say, feelings, if you will the pull upon us and our humanness, the things that we deal with and fight against, those things that have the potential of overcoming us, He's been there. He knows that. And that's what the Scriptures tell us. Able to be tempted in His humanity having put on flesh, but not able to sin. And you'll see a word, if you study this specifically, you'll you'll see the word impeccable pop up. And it'll talk about how impeccable Christ is. He's totally without sin. Totally unable to sin, but yet able in His humanity to experience what we experience. And it says, you know, the verse that follows, it says, Therefore let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's that that message, that picture of us being accepted and welcomed. And we come before a high priest who's fully capable of handling us, dealing with us, comforting us, restoring us, and making us, uh, keeping us, if you will, acceptable toward God because of his sacrifice. We come believing that, and we have that truth to lean on. So that's good. That's good. So what do we observe particularly from Hebrews 4.15 as a backdrop before we get into this? First, that Jesus knows our pain. He knows our feelings. We have feelings. Jesus had feelings. He knows our emotions. He knows all the different kinds, levels of temptation that we experience. And He is not one who cannot... Sympathize with our human experience, I like the verses that come from Psalms, where it says that he, he knows what He knows that we are but dust, He has that full understanding of us. Also, because of this, He's our uh, sympathetic and understanding high priest, and He stands in for us, and it's a picture of that. Not only in providing the sacrifice, but we know on this side of the cross that He continues to stand in for us. He is our advocate, is He not? That's what He does. Sometimes we feel like we can't approach God, right? Because we feel so dirty or so sinful. Or we've disappointed ourselves as well as God with our behavior, with our thoughts, our actions, our neglects perhaps. But yet because of His goodness, because of His Personhood, because of what he's accomplished, he stands there for us. And it says that we can come boldly and we can receive this grace. Thank God that we can. It says that he was tempted in all things like we are. Issues dealing with love, the lack of love, if you will. I know that he experienced rejection. His own family thought he's, as we would say, his cheese had slid off his cracker. Okay? Because of what was going on, his his Yeah, elevator didn't go all the way to the top, you know, whatever you want to say. Okay. Because they saw his behavior and his words as ir- irrational. I know that Mary was given a, a seems like a special grace and understanding as a mother, you know, it says that she would see these things and hear these things about him. Even when he was little, she said she would hide these things in her heart, she'd ponder these things in her heart. She knew her her son and she knew what was in store. For him, because of her previous experience, you know, you got an angel talking to you about what's going to happen. You've got a little different insight, but that's our Christ. He's experienced that grief, frustration, rejection. He's experienced it all. There's nothing worse in the difficulties that we have, I think, than than feeling like, or maybe even temporary, believing that in our difficulties that we are totally alone, that nobody has experienced what we have experienced. They don't know. They don't understand. And yet, I can promise you this from the Word of God this morning that Jesus Christ always knows. He knows it better than you do. If you can imagine that. He knows it and understands it. And He's able to supply exactly what we need at the specific time and the specific amount, whatever, Perfectly. And you say, well, how do we unlock this great power? How do we do this? How do we make this a reality in our life? Well, through simple yet profound belief and obedience to His Word. He will not fail. He'll provide each and every time in our life when we come before Him. Sometimes it requires us to wait upon Him with patience, doesn't it? But He never Never, ever fails. Now here's something that I, I pulled out and I thought this brought it together. It's a MacArthur quote, but uh, it took me to Hebrews. I was looking at some commentary on Hebrews. Now listen to this. There is a degree of temptation that we may never experience simply because no matter what our spirituality, we will succumb before we reach it. Think about that. But Jesus Christ had no such limitation. So when we talk about Him experiencing to the nth degree, if you will, in modern terms, <laughs> experiencing what we experience to a greater degree, this right here, this quote sums it up. And think about it from a practical standpoint. Yeah, you and I get to a point where we, by God's grace we uh, are overcomers, we stand on, on the Word, we overcome, or we succumb. We fail. We fall to temptation. Not so with Christ. And because He did not yield, and we can put it in these kind of terms, at a point in which most people, I could say even the strongest faith individual would yield, He did not yield. So the temptation kept coming. And it kept coming at a greater capacity, greater degree, whatever that means. Okay, That's what Christ has done. He, he knows. And He's been there. That's what we want, isn't it? We know that intuitively. We want to go and get help on an issue. And there's nothing wrong with that and getting counsel and encouragement, preaching or teaching or whatever we need. We go and get it from people that we have confidence in. Christ never, ever fails in that regard. Never. So He's fully capable, fully qualified, if you will, to meet our need in this area. Jesus now experienced Satan's attack in the wilderness, but as it says in the verse, he did it without sin. Chorus hamartia. No sin without sin. Totally. And that's important. It's important that we understand that he was not tainted in the least. And yet, still having the capacity to experience it on our behalf, but not tainted by it whatsoever. Because if He had been, we would all be having a bad day (laughs) right now. Though He was mercilessly tempted to sin, not the slightest taint of it ever entered His mind or was expressed in His words or His actions. That helps me when the times are difficult. I look back on various Challenges, if you will, periods in my life that were challenging. Periods of my life, and quite frankly, times that dealt with overcoming, being an overcomer. Ex- experiencing the goodness of, of, of God, victory in what Christ has done. I look back on this and remember trying to understand how I was supposed to move forward in my sanctification and trying to do so without a very a complete and clear understanding of this. So how important is it now? It is just so faith-building to recognize that. That, friends, the work has been done. We can't sit around and, and forgive me, but, but whine or, or carry on about what didn't happen and what did happen. No. No. We serve a sovereign God, we serve one who has already provided for, for all these things that come against us in our life. What the ultimate cause is to lead us to sin, to, to get us turned away from the will of God and the Word of God in our life. That's still the plan, the evil plan. So Jesus experienced in the wilderness on our behalf, it was very thorough, it was complete, it was at God's design, it was at His perfect, timing right out of his coronation his uh inauguration of his ministry straight into a time in the wilderness and you see this pattern you know throughout other places in scripture you know paul had to go down to arabia for a while he was down there for 3 years he got his undergraduate degree in 3 years instead of 4 but he got through down there God, by the abundance of the revelation, brought him to a point where he was ready to minister and do what God had called him to do, to be that light to the Gentiles. Jesus never sinned, but he understands sin better than any man. He's been in it more clearly and fought it more diligently than any of us could ever do or ever be able to do. And it's important for us to realize that and to understand that this morning. So we look at chapter 4, verse 1, and it says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit, it says, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, that word Spirit there is the same word that we've been seeing throughout, that word pneuma, you know, and you get this, impression of, you know, that which is, you know, God breathed or breath, or something floating or floating on an air current. Okay? Pneuma, the Spirit. But here in context, of course, it's talking about Christ's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God and he's led out. Now remember, it's it's God who's leading him out there. He's not succumbed to the to the drawings, if you will, of of temptation. God has led him out into this experience and I dare say again from a practical standpoint if you and I are walking in the fullness of the spirit okay we're not going to be latching on to evil and to the thing you can't the Bible says you can't they're, they're contrary one to another. Christ here was full of the, of the Spirit of God and it leads him out to this experience and God's going to use this he's going to use it he was led up by the spirit of god not satan's power drawing him out there and it said that he was led out there for the purpose of being tempted pirazo is the word and it means to scrutinize it means to test In other words to entice to to prove uh, to try and tempt okay it encompasses all those things this is clear And it was the devil himself who was doing this. That word that we're most familiar with, I think, diabolos, Satan. The false accuser. The one who is our continual slanderer. And I saw a word when I was looking this up. In my little Greek thing here, it said uh, it's the word traduce. Are you familiar with that word? Traduce. And it means to speak boldly or to tell lies about someone to damage their reputation. That's the way the word would have been used. So it tells us a little bit about what Satan's purpose was in doing this. So he's doing the tempting here. His desire is to discredit, to disprove, perhaps to put the Lord Jesus Christ in a position of failure. It's God's great desire To turn into victory, however, to turn into victory what Satan intends for failure. We'll read in James in a little bit and we'll see that God's not the the author of this. He doesn't tempt people. He can't be tempted. But what He does in His sovereignty, He can use any circumstance. He can use any situation for His honor and glory. Why? (laughs) Because He is that big. (laughs) He is that in charge. True enough. What's the first thing that would come to your mind when you... Think about this dynamic. Somebody doing something for one purpose, but yet it turns out to be beneficial in another purpose. It should take you to Genesis 50, verse 20. Yeah, where Joseph says, You meant it for me, talking to his brothers and selling them into slavery and all that and all this that happened over many years. You meant it for evil, he says, but God meant it for good. He's still in charge. and His promises are still true. Can you imagine how Joseph must have felt just to deviate to that for just a little bit. All that he struggled with and went through there being falsely accused and all those things. Don't you know that there were times when he said, where are you? (laughs) Okay? Is this how my faithfulness is rewarded? You ever been there? God, show up. Do do something. Do what you say you would do. And I hope there's a little voice that whispers to you during times like that. No, you're right where you're supposed to be. You're experiencing this. This is indeed a test, if you will, a trial of your faith to continue believing that God will provide. That's so important. That has so much to do with mine and your relationship with our Christ being strengthened and with endurance being ingrained, spiritual endurance being ingrained in our life. That's so much a part of our sanctification. We want this to happen, right? We want this to happen. We think in terms of living above sin, living above all the things that come to us. And the challenges become greater and greater sometimes, but God never fails, and He never will. He will provide. And there were many other examples in the Word of God. He can turn things. He can, he can turn them on a dime like that. Why? Because He's sovereign God And he's in charge. But what was Satan's purpose in his attempts at tempting Christ? What did he want? Well, the answer is simple. He wanted to get Christ to violate the plan of God. That's what he wanted him to do. He wanted him to employ or to bring down, cast, uh, or make known his divine power over these things. But he had set aside all of this in his humiliation. This was by design. This is what he was to do. He was to submit Himself unto the Father and take this role. As the commentators like to say, He had stepped away from His divine prerogatives. It wasn't that He was no longer God and couldn't, but this was His purpose. This is what He did. And He says, I'm always obedient to the Father. I'm always going to do the things of the Father. I'm going to be faithful. And yet there are times when we see Him cry out in His humanity, just like in the garden when He said, Father... And the Bible says he's he's sweating drops of blood. The anguish, the difficulty of what lays ahead, because he has identified with us as human beings, he's experiencing that. And he even says, in that case, let this cup, if it's possible, let it pass from me, but not my will, but your will. And in that verse right there, you see you see Him in His humanity. You see Him that He's still God Almighty and faithful. Not my will, but Your will. This is what He experienced. Philippians 2.7 makes it clear, I think, because it states that Christ emptied Himself. He purposely, and this is a picture of Him, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave, and being made in the likeness of of men, He took this form and that word in the original means the exact essence, essence. That's what he did. He has identified with us in this way. When you go through and study this, you'll find, and if you've been looking at my suggestion, if you've purchased you a biblical doctrine book, you'll see there are three things that we pull from here. Or three truths that we see from Satan's failed attempt here. Three things come out of this. I'm just going to give them to you as overviews. I'm not going to expound on all of them because you can read about them. But we do want to see these. They'll guide us as we get into each of these temptations. The first one, of course, would be the impeccability of Christ. This is what comes out of this. He experienced the full force of sin, but he did not sin. Obviously, that's what we see. And then secondly, that he exalted the Word of God each and every time, with each of these three recorded temptations here, he brought to bear the word of God on this. And that's our example, is it not? This is what we do. Your word, it says in Psalms, "I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you." We know that from Psalm 119:11. and that the word is a lamp unto our feet, is a light. Into our path. We read from that great psalm of exaltation of God's Word. We read that and we know that. We see that by example here with Christ. And don't overlook this. In times of difficulty, in times of stress, in times of great decision, go to the Word of God. Go to it. That's where the answers are. And then lastly, thirdly, Christ's superiority and authority over Satan because he did not yield, he did not flinch not one iota as I said before no taint of sin anywhere in this experience on the part of Christ James says let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil and he cannot or does not tempt anyone but each one has or is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. James one thirteen. If you grew up in the seventies, none of you did, maybe a couple of you, I don't know. You used to hear a a well known comedian, pretty funny guy, named Flip Wilson, and he was known for one little particular phrase. Do you remember what it was? The devil made me do it. Yeah. Okay. That's what he would say. Bad theology. Bad theology because the devil doesn't make us do it. James makes it clear, and it's made clear throughout. We are from Adam, okay? We were shapen in iniquity, David says, and in sin did our mother conceive us, okay? We have it within us. That's what this is all about. This is about the penalty being paid. So it's not the devil of his influences. We can't blame it on him. We have to get to the point where we realize that, hey, this problem is within me. All right, We can be tempted. We can have forces on the outside trying to bring this reality out of us to get us to act like the devil, to say things like the devil would say them. But it comes out of us. It does. And the flesh continues to make it real if we let it... Rain. That's why Paul would say don't let that rain in your body. Don't do that. Recognize it. Call it what it is, as I like to say, and deal with it. Don't give it any ground. Don't give it any ground. So he puts it where it ought to be here. Matthew six thirteen, In that prayer, and we'll get to this later, and we'll deal with it later, but in that model prayer, he says, "...and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil." That sounds almost like a contradiction, doesn't it? Does God lead us into temptation... What is the intent here? This is Christ talking. This is Matthew recording what Christ said. But to be specific, it's a petition on the part of a believer that reflects a believer's desire to avoid the dangers of sin altogether. As if to say, I don't want to go there. Take me away from that. I have such an aversion against sin, and I'm trusting you to lead me away from that. That should be our attitude, Right? Don't touch it. Shun, as it says, the very appearance of evil. This is the attitude that we have to have because we understand the devastation that lies at the end of sin having its way in our life. No matter how it starts, no matter how small. I dare say that's a that's a huge burden to carry without a clear understanding about what has been done on our behalf. Oh man, I'd just almost be you know It's going to get me if I'm not careful. No, we can rest. We can trust. We can prepare ourselves by filling our heart and mind with the Word of God, by doing what the Word of God says to stay away from sin and to keep those things from happening in our life. In Romans 13-14, Paul says to make no provision for the flesh. Just don't do it. Understand what it is, and don't don't go there. First Corinthians ten thirteen. I'm going to share with you. And this is the verse we talked about earlier. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. This verse also. Puts the onus, if you will, not upon the devil, not upon anything but what? Us. Provision has been made. There is a way. Have you ever, had to, have you ever been involved in a temptation where you literally had to hang on this verse? Okay, God, where is it? <laughs> Where's the way out? Where's the strength? Because something bad's... Fixing to happen here. If I don't get this straight between my ears or whatever, just fill in the blanks. It could be anything. But the fact of the matter is, this is the Word of God. This is, this is Scripture that tells us that there is a way out. The issue is, are we looking for it? Or, have we already moved to that point in ourselves where we're beyond that? And my whole purpose this morning in mentioning that to you would be to kind of help you say, Ooh, I, don't, I don't ever want to be there. I, I, want to, I want to recognize this sin or whatever it is, this potential before I ever get there and then realize that there is a way. There is a way of escape. That's, that's, that's what we have as believers. That's the power that resides in us to the degree that we're Filled with His Spirit. We have this. And we, therefore, do not have an excuse. Now, ultimately, when we fail, we know that we're but dust. We know that we're not perfect. We know that. We know that our sanctification is continuing. But this is why we talk about sin on the part of the believer in this fashion. That sin should be less and less and less manifested in our life. And yet, we know from some degree, we sin every day. At least in our thoughts, neglects or whatever. But there's a power here. There's a provision for us. The Bible says it is characteristic of believers. We do have this ability within ourselves only as it is provided by Christ. And then of ourselves, we have nothing. Nothing. But through His Spirit, through the knowledge of His Word, we have what it takes to be Overcomers, Go back and read about all those seven churches in the Revelation. Read about them. And you'll find, you'll find that. I think he talks about being overcomers in every single instance. To Him that overcomes. To Him that overcomes. And I'd go back and read that. I remember this. I was 20 years old. I was reading this stuff. Okay, okay. You're, we're overcomers. I got it. Well, How do you do this? And then later on, is it, it's, uh, I didn't mark it because I didn't plan to talk about it. It's chapter 11 or 12 of the Revelation. I can't remember. But he says... He talks about how they overcame. He says they overcame him, talking about evil, the evil one, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto death. You can take those three right there and go. By the blood of the Lamb, ultimately, by Christ's sacrifice, what he'd done, by the word of their testimony, they're true. Their they're standing, they're, they're standing in Christ in that context is going to cost them their life. They know what they have done. They know they have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They know that. And the evidence of that is that they're not all about themselves anymore. They're about Christ. They're about serving others. They love not their lives unto death. Their life's been changed. And that's how we become... Overcomers. Overcomers in this life, as the song says. Well, verse, let's see if I can get... Yeah, I can do verse 2 here. we we'll look at this. It says, And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, then he became hungry. Well, yeah. 40 days and 40 nights. Now, physiologically, from a human standpoint, how long can you go without food? What do they say? Forty days. Okay, that's what I've always been taught. Boy Scouts all the way up. What about water though? How, how long can you go without water? Seven days. Maybe seven days. I guess how you're hydrated before you start. So obviously is the miraculous power surrounding him, even enabling Christ, the God-man, the Son of Man, to do this from in the first place, but in that he experienced what we experienced. Can you imagine his physical state at this point is where I'm going? Can you imagine that? Whew. A, lot, a lot to deter a person, right, at that point. And then, and I don't know if you've noticed, but I pulled this out too. If you read the accounts in Mark, in chapter 1, verse 13, or in Luke, chapter 4, verse 2, They indicate that Jesus was already being tempted before the record of these three primary temptations. He was already involved in temptation throughout this 40 day period. So, throw that into it. Pretty clear. Throw that into it. So, it's a horrific set of circumstances going on here with Christ. What's the purpose? He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. What's the purpose here? Why all of this? Was it to wear Him down, maybe? Was it? Maybe. Don't you know that temptation is most effective when we're physically weak? You ever experience that? I experience that all the time. I'm married. I experience that all the time. Both ways. It goes both ways. It goes both ways, doesn't it? I just don't feel good today, or I'm tired of this or that, or I've been sick like my precious wife has been. And yes, it's, it, it puts, uh, I, you pray, <laughs> don't laugh, I'm being serious. You pray for an a, a extra level of grace to minister and to understand and to know that when people are under the gun and they're hurting and they're sick, that they're not, they're not going to respond like they normally would. None of us do. None of us do. We have to be careful it's interesting too that we have to be careful when it goes the other way, right? We'll look at that in a little bit. When things are going well, yeah, when things are going great, he gets involved in that too, the devil he does. Because we often let our guard down at that time as well. We'll look at that later. Do you find it to be true in your life that after every victory or high point, or we like to call them mountaintop experiences, that they're immediately... Follow some kind of trial some kind of difficulty we know that that's going to happen and there are examples of that here they are what about Elijah Elijah rather he's the first one that comes to mind prophets of Baal what does he do what a, what a show take take the altar pour all this water on it okay make it make it obvious. Pour all this water on it, and then he, the prophets, of Baal pray to consume the altar. They can't do it. They start cutting themselves. It says, and doing all that they do. <laughs> do what? Made <laughs> yeah, made fun of. Him. Maybe actually, I heard an interesting interpretation of that. He said, maybe your God is in the bathroom. Maybe that's where he really? is. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. <laughs> but when he pray, when he prays, Elijah prays. Woom. The fire comes down. It consumes the altar. It consumes the stones. It consumes. Everything. There's no doubt that God is large and in charge. That's chapter 18 of 1 Kings. Then, when you get to the 19th chapter, he's saying, God, just kill me. Just kill me. And he finds him, he goes off the horn. You know, he's just in his weakness because Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And that, that's, that's the way we're put together, right? We just can't step away from the Word of God for a moment. We can't by any degree when there's any success in our life to think that in some way we contributed to, to that. It is God's grace. It is God's goodness in our life. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights and this is what happens to him. Paul has the experience in the third heaven. He says he saw things that he was commanded not to even speak about. Just... Marvelous, wonderful things. But yet, because of His humanness, maybe even, well, it says plainly, because of His pride, because of His humanness, He gets a thorn in the flesh. It's going to stay there. He said, I prayed, take this thing away. Now, it's better for you to keep you humble. Really? The Apostle Paul needs that to keep him humble after all he's been through? Yeah. There's evidence in Scripture that he might have struggled with that a little bit. So something that great. And then to have to deal with this. Peter, obviously, his declaration. Lord, everybody else may forsake you. Everybody may turn and run away, but not me. And the emphasis there was me, as he said that. The Lord tells him right off. Are you kidding? Before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me three times. Or twice three times. And that's exactly, exactly what happened. Well, we see those patterns. We, we see that in Scripture. And it's a reminder to us that this is what happens in our life. We can experience these same things. These are the kind of things that educate us and kind of put us on notice and remind us that unless I learn from this, unless I learn from what Scripture is revealing here that, that has occurred in the lives of others, then I might fall to the same thing. Well... <clears throat> I mentioned, you know, I hadn't mentioned this, but I mentioned it now, and I think we'll get started with this later, but um, if you look at verses 3, verses 6, and verses 9 in this passage, these are the three temptations that, that Satan puts forward to Christ. And if you look at these, they mirror what we find in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where John in his epistle there, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, okay? He says they're not from the Father, but it's from the world. And it's talking about the unredeemed world. We know who runs that, don't we? So maybe that's a good place to start. We can look next Sunday. We can start with the first temptation in chapter 3. And that's kind of what we'll look at as a backdrop. Realizing that Christ has been tempted during this 40-day period, all through that period, He's suffering physically, okay? Okay? Um, the climate alone. I mean, the desert of Judea. I mean, it's referred to as the wilderness. It's a rocky, jagged... looks like Mars or whatever. It It really does. It's a nasty place. So he's experiencing that. But Scripture has recorded for us these three particular areas of temptation. And we're accurate in saying they're, they're representative of what John tells us. And I've shared this verse with you before in times past and challenged you to think of any sin. Try and think of a sin that doesn't fall under one of these categories. Lust of the flesh, desiring anything, doesn't have to be something sexual, just anything, you know, eating too much, whatever. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And they'll fall under one of those categories. So we'll begin next Sunday with the first temptation.